0: Welcome to the Byline Times podcast, the Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name is Adrian Goldberg and this week, a matter of life and death, the silencing of NHS whistleblowers. After a review in 2015, which followed a series of scandals where staff and patient concerns had been ignored, NHS workers were promised a new era of freedom to speak up. It hasn't worked out that way for this nurse, unable to work for the last five years after telling bosses about a colleague who assaulted her.
1: We're at a point where the trust don't want me to share the outcome of the investigation and the risk to public safety.
0: We'll hear calls for an overhaul of the National Guardian's office set up to encourage NHS workers to speak out about poor practice.
2: I'm pretty cross about the National Guardian's office and the whole freedom to speak up system.
0: All that to come. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times is a news source free of interference from any media mogul or corporate interest. We rely instead on people like you becoming subscribers to our monthly newspaper the Byline Times. It's a great read and it costs just £36 a year. It would make a wonderful Christmas present for that special someone in your life. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Let's start then by talking about NHS whistleblowers, a subject which has been exercising Byline Times writer Stephen Colgrave, who has written a series of revealing articles at BylineTimes.com about conditions on the front line of healthcare. His sources are almost always anonymous because speaking out is usually frowned upon by health service managers, even if it's in the public interest, and despite previous promises to encourage whistleblowing. We'll hear more from Stephen shortly. But I want to start with Michelle Russell, an NHS nurse of more than 30 years' experience, who says she's been victimised for raising serious concerns about a colleague.
1: In 2015, I was working with a male colleague who sexually harassed and assaulted me, and I raised it with my manager, and there was an internal investigation by my employer which I can only really describe as a bit of a cover-up. And after going through quite a long process of appealing and being threatened with losing my job, I felt I had no option but to whistleblow, and I stood outside Parliament in January 2018 with a big banner saying, I'm a nurse and this is what has happened to me. And Ruth May... She wasn't the chief nurse then, but she was working at NHS Improvement. She happened to be walking past Parliament while I was protesting. And she stopped and spoke to me and invited me up for a meeting at NHS Improvement and ordered an independent investigation into the process. And that upheld all my allegations about the process being corrupted And then there was another investigation into the sexual harassment claims and they were all upheld as well.
0: So your claim that you were sexually harassed was upheld. Your claim that the process which investigated that was flawed was also upheld. But sadly, here we are five years on from you raising the complaint and you're not back at work. Why not?
1: I'm not back at work because I haven't been supported back to work and initially the perpetrator was still actually working in my trust and had actually been promoted, so I would have been actually working more closely with him. The independent investigation had uncovered other cases of this man sexually harassing both my colleagues and members of the public and the trust knew about that during the investigation process. So I've been going through what I thought was a learning process for the trust and supporting them to do that learning, really. And unfortunately, we're at a point where the trust don't want me to share the outcome, really, of the investigation and the risk to public safety, which is the reason that You know, my biggest fear always through this was that he would hurt somebody else. And to have that confirmed was probably the worst part of this journey, really. So I've always wanted to ensure that, you know, any learning minimises potential harm to other people. So just so I'm
0: clear about this, then, the trust would have been happy to have you back, but you want the report findings to be made public and that's the sticking point between you.
1: Well, I haven't actually been supported back to work despite that being promised. So I haven't actually been at work for five years. That's quite a long time to be out of a workplace, particularly the trauma of being assaulted at work does make it very difficult. And I think I'd need some support for that to happen. And, and although that has been... Promised it hasn't actually materialized. So, going back to work, even now, the perpetrator doesn't work for my employing trust, but I I haven't been helped in that journey back to work. So, I mean, it it has obviously taken quite a toll on me, and I can sound quite brave and together, but you know, it's quite limited in terms of me being safe inside my own home. It's going to be a very different story, I think, when I've got to face employment and workplace again.
0: But you are seeking help through a crowdfunding campaign to take your case to an employment tribunal, because part of your argument is that you do want the facts of this case to be out there. Having been brave enough to be a whistleblower, you want the facts on which you blew the whistle to be made public.
1: Yes, I do, because number one, I think it's essential for public safety. There is a public safety risk in my case. It's not a potential risk. There has been harm. And secondly, there needs to be a change of culture. Raising concerns in the NHS is something which is encouraged, but is incredibly difficult, punishing I didn't have an idea really until I started this journey as to quite how difficult that is. And that that needs to change and there needs to be a different way of dealing with people that raise concerns because I feel like I've been treated like the perpetrator.
0: Michelle Russell. Now the trust Michelle works for has issued a public apology to her and said it has taken appropriate disciplinary action. But as we heard, Michelle doesn't feel she's been helped back to work and is determined to give the facts of her story a full public airing. As a result, she's now crowdfunding with a view to going to an employment tribunal. You'll find more details at her Twitter account, at Mother M. Russ. That's at Mother M. Russ. It's all one word. Talking of raising money, this seems like as good a time as any to remind you that the Byline Times doesn't owe allegiance to any political party. We aren't backed by a media tycoon, nor do we depend on funding from any corporate source. We're here to challenge the abuses of money and power. And to do that, we rely on people like you taking out a subscription. You can get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, Michelle Russell isn't the first NHS worker to fall foul of bosses who seem more bothered about protecting the image of their health trust than taking tough action where it's needed. Scandals at both Stafford Hospital and Gosport War Memorial Hospital, where concerns were raised and ignored with deadly consequences, led to a report by Sir Robert Francis in 2015 called Freedom to Speak Up and with the subtitle An Independent Review into Creating an Open and Honest Reporting Culture in the NHS, it led to the creation of a National Guardian's Office whose remit is to ensure that speaking up becomes business as usual in the health service. So how well is it doing? We'll hear from David Drew, a former NHS clinical director and whistleblower who lost his job in 2010 and whose concerns helped lead to the creation of the NGO. First, Stephen Colgrave from the Byline Times. What made him want to delve into this area in the first place?
3: Well, I've been um, writing a series, which is called Alone and Exposed, about whistleblowers in public services. It really started off when I got interested in the Public Interest Disclosure Act, which is actually 1998, which really needs updating, because when this act was first put into place, it was meant to protect whistleblowers, but it just seems to me to have protected employers rather than whistleblowers themselves. And I got worried about this because with Brexit, the EU had a whistleblower protection directive, which meant to come in in January, which actually would have answered all my concerns, because I have done some work with the NHS and public services before, and I've seen the problem with how important whistleblowers are and how they don't get protected. But Brexit has just wiped out this EU directive, which means that we are really left exposed. So that was my first concern. And then I've, I've been off to actually talk to whistleblowers and try and understand what they've been doing. And that's how I got into this.
0: And specifically in relation to the NHS, in 2015, there was a report published by Sir Robert Francis in recognition of the fact that there was a particular problem in the health service. Francis's report was called the Freedom to Speak Up Review, and that was meant to herald a new era
3: of openness. Yeah, it was a huge letdown, though. This really came out of the uh, mid-staff scandal and review from there and also after the Gossport scandal. And from that, Royal Francis uh, did get those reviews, and then he was asked to do this sort of bigger review as to what the NHS could do about it. And he came up with this Freedom to Speak Up initiative, and the idea would be there would be Freedom to Speak Up sort of guardians in every trust and NHS organisation. And they would try and create a space and help and uh, protect whistleblowers. And then there was a National Guardian office set up the National Guardian is now Dr. Henrietta Hughes. The problem is, when you actually drill into this, this whole thing doesn't give any real protections to whistleblowers. To me, it's become you know a piece of PR, really. And what I found out when I wrote my articles is that whenever there is a, you know, when the rubber hits a road and there is a whistleblower that needs protecting, or there's been some scandal around the way a whistleblower has been not protected and treated, um, everybody backs off. And it's not just actually the National Guardian. I wrote an article about this. It's also CQC and, and all the other bodies and organisations that we think would want to do this. Yeah. And just
0: in case people don't know the background, Stephen, we're coming to this subject fresh, the mid-staff scandal that you refer to. Somewhere between 400 and 1200 patients are estimated to have died as a result of poor care between January 2005 and March 2009 at Stafford Hospital. Many of the patients' families were raising their concerns. Sadly, they were ignored. At Gosport War Memorial Hospital, 456 patients died after being prescribed inappropriate drugs. Again, staff had tried to raise the alarm there but had been ignored. So that just underpins why this is so important. It is literally a matter of life and death.
3: Well, well, Adrian, I, I don't know if you know, but the last, I mean, there aren't any really up-to-date figures on this, but everything I've seen bears a doubt. Liam Donaldson, I think it was in 2009, who was a chief medical officer, actually came up with some figures that one in 300 people that go into hospital end up dying through negligence. And one in 10 have something adverse happen to them through negligence. So, you know, if you were running an airline where one in 300 people on the plane ended up dying because of that airline, you know, you wouldn't get on that plane. So, you know, we're talking about a service that has extreme problems and has had these structural problems for a long time. And you're quite right in those two reviews that were done of those two particular awful scandals, both of them identified that staff had spoken up and that if somebody listened to those staff who'd spoken up, i.e. whistleblowing, most of the deaths could have been avoided. So this is a really, really serious issue. And, that, and that's why I'm so upset. As Robert Francis became knighted and very noble and important. The report sounded great, but actually it has no veracity at all. You know, when it's actually come out there, the National Guardian office, you see one of my articles, you know, totally let down. One of my whistleblowers was an ex-policeman who'd been brought in as an inspector, basically to inspect something that had gone wrong and actually run a review of it within a hospital, you know, once he started touching on sensitive matters the trust thought was sensitive, they tried to get rid of him. And he then went to CQC, he went to the National Guardian office, You know, he went to NHS England and all the rest of it, and he got stonewalled all the way. And this isn't the first case, there's lots of cases of these. And this is what really concerns me. It's a typical NHS initiative. It sounds great, doesn't it? Freedom to speak up sounds really exciting and inspirational, but it is not achieving what was set out. And I think it's a massive missed opportunity coming out of you know as you said a thousand to fifteen hundred deaths in those two hospitals and you know all those relatives and everything all they really want or anybody really wants I find when you have a, a relative within the NHS whose family member has something avoidable happen to them is they just don't want this to happen again and the problem is it is
0: Yes, and in the case that you're referring to, where you've got the former police officer, who you've named Paul, not his real name, Paul was called in to investigate maladministration in relation to what was thought to have been an avoidable death. The trust concerned took his report, they doctored it, so that when Paul later found out that it had been used against an employee, he felt that the employee had been scapegoated that employee had been dismissed and Paul's evidence proving that his own initial report had been doctored by the trust was used by the tribunal to say that the dismissal should not have taken place. So you've got an avoidable death and then you've got a cover up by the trust when a retired former police officer attempts to lay bare the failings.
3: Yes. And as you can see, I I actually put in the reports on the minutes from a tribunal which actually stated that. Again, I'm very worried about these investigators. I mean, Paul has huge integrity and he was determined to stick his neck out and expose the truth. But the point is the trust often appoints their own investigators from a bank. It means that they've got their own tame investigators that are in a group and they decide to bring them in. Now, that doesn't sound to me terribly independent. And then when you get one who actually wants to be independent, like Paul, and push it all the way, you know, he doesn't get any support from anyone. And, and as you can see in that, he did go to CQC, and he did go to the NHS, and he went to the National Guardian Office, and every way he got stonewalled by people. And this is not just a one-off incident. I mean, I have at least another dozen of these cases on tape that you know, I'm going to be reporting about.
0: And there's a magazine, a publication called the Health Service Journal, which many people within the NHS would be aware of. And they have a Freedom to Speak Up Award. And you think, great, this is celebrating the trust to ensure that whistleblowers are protected and are listened to. But your report for Byline Times shows that three of the shortlisted trust in the HSJ's Freedom to Speak Up Award Workers did not feel secure, raising concerns about unsafe clinical care. So you've got trust, health trusts who were shortlisted for an award, where their own staff do not have confidence in the whistleblowing procedures.
3: No, absolutely, and there were a number of them too, where from the that same 2019 NHS staff survey, where staff felt that they were being bullied, and in fact, I think the worst ones were over 20% of staff felt that they were being bullied. So. That's the problem with this environment. The environment means that there is no environment where anyone feels that they can actually own up to even making a mistake, let alone seeing something that, you know, they supposedly weren't meant to. So, you know, and if no one's prepared to take blame and no one's prepared to admit that they've made mistakes or learn from mistakes, then I'm afraid nothing will improve. And, and that's a real issue. I also do have an issue with this because, you know, the National Guardian's office actually paid for sponsorship definitely in 2018. And I'm pretty sure in 2019. And the problem with HSJ is they need to be careful because, you know, that when I looked at their sponsorship packages, and indeed, I, I'm not saying that National Guardian wasn't judged, because I don't think she was, but you pay for sponsorship, which I, I think in The 2018 case was £16,500, and for that you get a couple of columns of an article in the HSJ, which you know is meant to look pretty independent. But you also get on the judging panel, and you also can be part of the shortlisting process. So, again, you know this whole conflict of interest and lack of independence is even there in the biggest trade magazine from the NHS. So my worry is this pervades the whole service, you know, and we really need to do something about it. Why is the National Guardian's office, in your view, not doing its job? Well, I think it goes back to its terms of reference coming out of that Francis review, because if you actually look at what it talks about, it talks about creating a space and environment for people to speak out. It doesn't anywhere on its website I see talk about actually protecting whistleblowers' rights. The National Guardian was there to sort of look after the Freedom to Speak Up guardians that were put in each of the trusts. The problem with the Freedom to Speak Up guardians are there was no specific remit for them. They were to enable people to speak up. They weren't to protect people who did speak up. And they were employed by the trust. So if the trust felt that those people speaking up were somehow speaking against the trust or perhaps something, you know, putting the trust in a difficult legal position, they wouldn't particularly protect them or help them because they'd be independent to do it. So the National Guardian looks after the guardians. It doesn't look after the whistleblowers as far as I can see. And I haven't found a single case where the National Guardian has actually been there defending a whistleblower against a trust.
0: And yet the Francis report was called the Freedom to Speak Up Review. So you would assume, and certainly a lot of the publicity around it at the time suggested that this was its purpose, was to ensure that whistleblowers could speak up without fear of intimidation or bullying.
2: Well,
3: it's a freedom to speak up as long as you speak up the way the NHS wants you to speak up. (laughs) There's a very difference between somebody who speaks up and a whistleblower who actually is prepared to actually expose wrongdoing that they see right to the fact that they will probably in the current environment lose their job and their livelihood and potentially end up in court and actually be accused and potentially prosecuted that's what it means to be a whistleblower it's not a nice thing like oh we're going to speak up and say things should be better it's it's a completely different thing and I think that it shouldn't have been called Freedom to Speak Up. It should have been called Whistleblower or something like that. And, and what's happened it, to me, it's, it, unfortunately, I personally feel that it's a whitewash and, um, and it needs to be changed. And that's why I go back to the whole Brexit thing, because if you look at the European directive, it was very different. It says one in six of us will probably be whistleblowers sometime during our career. One in six of us will see something that is so bad that it is risking life or something like that. And we will need to speak up. So this is not just one or two people. The reason why it's only one or two people at the moment is there's only one or two people who are brave enough to put their neck on the line and actually whistleblow and take the consequences in in the current legal environment. Stephen, stay there. I want to bring in at this point
0: David Drew. David was a consultant who was dismissed after 37 years working for the NHS for gross misconduct. And his crime was to have spoken out about what he regarded as poor practice in a paediatric unit where he worked in Warsaw in West Midlands, where he was the clinical director. David, that was 10 years ago. When you hear what Stephen has said, and I know that you've been very active in the whistleblowing field ever since, do you feel that anything has
2: changed since you lost your job? No, things are probably worse than they were. I was intimately involved in the Freedom to Speak Up review. In fact, it was as a result of correspondence that I had with Anne Cluid, who'd done a whistleblowing report for Cameron, and then Charlie Massey at the Department of Health, and then Simon Stevens, the Chief Exec at NHS England. It was as a result of that that I ended up with six other whistleblowers in Jeremy Hunt's office. And it was as a result of that meeting that we had in 2014 that Francis was commissioned to do that review. Anyway, uh, just two things about it. First of all, in the meetings that we had prior to the review beginning, we made it very, very clear that the Public Interest Disclosure Act which was originally conceived to protect whistleblowers. We knew it needed to be reformed because it wasn't working. And at that time, only just a few percent of people who went to the tribunals were actually successful. And and that put off most people going in the first place. So clearly uh, no legal protection for the whistleblowers. Anyway, he ignored that completely. But what he did do... He acknowledged that people were likely to be sacked for whistleblowing in the the NHS. And he knew, he had evidence that people were being blacklisted and could never work again in the NHS. So he recommended a piece of legislation to protect people from being blacklisted. Now, that's been enacted since. It's no use and it's never been used. I think the key to this whole thing is what Francis told us in those meetings. And he said, I will not be making any recommendation to government that they will not listen to because that's a waste of time. And that's why we've got the freedom to speak up guardians and the National Guardians Office and all that ludicrous system, which uses loads and loads of taxpayers money. And has not to the present time produced a shred of evidence that it's doing what it is supposed to be doing. So I'm pretty cross about the National Guardian's office and the whole freedom to speak up system.
0: You can see where Francis was coming from, though, can't you? If you are in charge of putting forward a a review to government, there's no point making recommendations
2: that a government is going to ignore. That may be true, but there's not a great deal of integrity in that kind of response to my way of thinking, because the most recent Protect, and they're the principal whistleblowing charity, their most recent study, which looked at people who reported concerns in the NHS related to COVID, a lot of people have been sacked. And most people who reported concerns, they were just ignored. So Francis has not achieved anything, clearly. And it would have been much better if at that time he had recommended that PEDA were reformed radically, taken out of the Employment Rights Act, and then if they didn't listen to him, he could have come public with us and said, what the government wants to do is never going to protect either whistleblowers or patients. But, of course, he's an establishment figure, As Stephen just said, he's got his knighthood and here we are on the bottom rung of the ladder, the outsiders, with no real voice except for opportunities like the one that you're giving us at the present, Adrian. David, if somebody is listening to this who works for the NHS and
0: sees examples of unsafe practice which could lead to harm coming to patients,
2: possibly even death, what would your advice to them be? Uh, You've got to follow your own conscience, and I can't prescribe that for any individual. In general, a healthcare professional has got an ethical responsibility to his patients. He's got a professional responsibility down to his regulators' codes. And of course, now that the whole trust has got responsibility, uh, uh, according to statute, to tell the truth about what happens, People will probably have heard of the case of Chris Day, who is a young doctor in training for emergency medicine, who spoke up about poor staffing, which was putting uh, patients at risk in a unit in um, London Hospital. And as a direct result of that, the guy has lost not just his job, but his career. And he's spent the last five or six years going through the courts with everyone trying to block him using public funds. So that's the risk that you face. And as the PROTECT study showed, there are people in recent times who've spoken up about problems relating to COVID that have been sacked. It's still happening. And the National Guardian, Henrietta Hughes, knows this. She is powerless to do anything about it except to every so often have a little bit of a flap and say, oh, this is quite wrong. But ostensibly, her office was to stop that sort of thing happening. She hasn't stopped it and she knows it. Stephen, this is pretty worrying stuff, isn't it? Because on the one hand, if you
0: work in the NHS and you fear that patients are at risk, you're conscience might encourage you to speak out about that. On the other hand, when you look at what David said, and when you read around other cases in this area, you might feel that you'll risk your job, your livelihood, and your future as well. It's, it, people who work in the NHS should not be put in that position.
3: Oh, absolutely. And and sometimes it's really not even talking out about something that major. I mean, as as David said, you know, I was contacted because I've worked a lot with the NHS in the past, I was contacted by hundreds of NHS frontline staff in the pandemic, especially in the early part of the pandemic. None of them could go on the record. They were all scared of speaking to me because they had been told that if they spoke to the press, they would lose their jobs. And that's absolutely outrageous and it just shows that as an organization the NHS which after all is our NHS I mean we pay for the NHS it's meant to work for us that was the you know I thought was the founding principle you know there's this lovely NHS constitution which talks about all this but how can it be working for us if it's going to be a secretive organization that's not going to allow anyone to say what's really going on and not learn and improve from what it's doing I mean it's just ridiculous and. I mean, I, I'm determined to going on this. I mean, often we have to do it under a cloak of anonymity for people, but I'm determined that we, we, keep, we keep pushing as hard as we can to expose this. I mean, the last one I did was, uh, let's call her Jane, who was a, a nurse in A&E. And, you know, sometimes what people come up with is, is not easy to hear. And, and what we found there was that every day, in fact, twice a day since COVID, she's had disabled people coming into her A&E as patients with abusive family members. And it's very clear to her, and she's had to continue to ring social services, the police. who really can't do much about it. She's even had a case of patients who've come in and died through abuse. Now, she had to speak to me anonymously because, you know, she felt she couldn't speak up to anyone else, even though everybody else in that A&E knew what was going on. They they felt they couldn't speak up and, and explain what was happening. And that's, you know, that is absolutely outrageous and awful. And, you know, it'd be very simple. All DWP need to do is when they give carers allowance out to these people is do a few checks, give them a bit of training, do some follow up. But all they're interested in is do they qualify financially? Have they got any other income, which means they can't get carers allowance? They don't think about what these people are actually doing and how they're behaving and any sort of safeguarding. So, you know, it's not little isolated instances that's coming up. It's, it's major parts of the system that are not working and are not being exposed. And are not being improved. The only other thing I wanted to say, you know, while David's here as well, is that actually the the whistleblowers I've met are some of the bravest and most courageous people I've met because, you know, at the moment they're working in a very hostile environment where, you know, they can lose their livelihood, and you know, it's not like they can go and work anywhere else easily because they've spent years of training, they've spent decades probably of fantastic service, and suddenly they're going to lose their whole career, which is, you know, absolutely outrageous.
2: One of the original. NHS whistleblowers was Steve Bolson, who blew the whistle on the avoidable deaths of large numbers of heart patients at Bristol Royal Infirmary. As soon as he finished doing that job and the investigation was underway, he found he couldn't get a job in Britain. He's had to go and spend the rest of his career working in Australia. Peter Duffy, who was a urology surgeon up at Morecambe Bay, He has to work on the Isle of Wight because he can't work in Britain. Chris Day has to work for a locum agency and lots of people just have to retrain to do something else or take early retirement or or have a nervous breakdown and that is the end of the line for these uh, decent people.
0: David Drew and before that Stephen Colgrave. When Stephen contacted the National Guardian's office about the Health Service Journal's Freedom to Speak Up Award and the shortlisting of trusts with a questionable record for encouraging staff to speak out, the NGO said the judging process is managed by HSJ. These trusts were shortlisted by an independent panel who judged each entry on the criteria published on the HSJ website. I put some of the criticisms aired in this podcast to the National Guardian's office. They declined to comment any further. You can read much more from Stephen Colgrave at bylinetimes.com. Before we go, just a reminder that the Byline Times is an independent news source, holding to account those with money and power. We can only do that because of people like you, who subscribe to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. If you can't think of what to buy a friend or loved one for Christmas, how about this? It's a great read and costs just £36 a year. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. See you next time.